Hi, everyone. Anne Louise Gittleman here, First Lady of Nutrition for the First Lady of Nutrition podcast. And this episode is brought to you by our good friends at Unikey Health. They're the makers of the finest supplements on the market for immunity, wellness, and overall health. And as many of you know, I've personally recommended Unikey for over three decades because of their commitment to quality, to purity, and to potency. So check them out at unikeyhealth.com. And today, it's indeed a pleasure to welcome a woman who's been on the front lines of the COVID epidemic. Her name is Erin Marie Olszewski, and she is the undercover epicenter nurse at the epicenter of the epicenter. Good day to you, Erin Marie. Thank you so much for having me, Anne-Louise, and hello to all the listeners out there. I appreciate the, taking the time to, to hear my story. And so tell me what happened to you. Now, I know that you're a, a health fi- fighter. I mean, you, you've been to Iraq, for heaven's sake. So fighting for health, fighting for freedom is, is something that's not new to you. What happened to you when you were assigned to the epicenter at Elmhurst Hospital in New York? You were a traveling nurse, as I recall, because you actually live in Florida. So what happened there? What was your experience? Um, yeah, so I normally I'm not a travel nurse. This was kind of an extra assignment that kind of came across my lap and we were furloughed at my hospital in Florida. So a lot of nurses were struggling to get hours and um, I reached out to my, my manager and my director and I asked them if it would be okay if I you know, took the assignment and they said, absolutely, you know, good luck. And so I packed up my belongings and in two days I was on a plane kissed my kids goodbye and um you know headed into essentially a war zone um this would have been kind of like the second war zone (laughs) I, I was going into so um I was for the listeners that don't know I'm a veteran in the United of the United States Army and I served in Iraq um Operation Iraqi Freedom and from 2003 to 2004 so I kind of was preparing the same way that I prepared for Iraq going into New York. You know, you're getting off that plane, you're ready to go to work and help people. And it kind of came to a, a complete stop. And we were, we took a taxi hotel um, that they put up in, in Times Square is the Marriott And we sat there for three long days with nothing to do. So, but this this was in April of 2020. So, was that unusual? Were they just getting themselves organized? Do you think? Um, it was a lot of mismanagement, and that's where kind of a lot of my story is, you know, kind of intertwines all these different areas where the system failed the people. Um, this was one of them. So, they absolutely needed nurses in these hospitals at that time. So it was confusing to a lot of us while we were sitting around and not just heading right into work. You know, if this is a war zone, let's get to work. That was our thought process. So what happened at work? Now, tell us a little bit about Elmhurst Hospital. Where is it located in New York City? Is it in New York City or on the outskirts? It's in Queens. um, And it's in a more uh, low-income area. The hospital itself serves mostly, um, you know, the, the black population and the Hispanic population, a whole lot of Medicare and Medicaid type of patients, um, just, you know, 
a lower income families essentially and i think that has a lot to do with the high death rate that we saw there um, i know a lot of people all around the united states were kind of wondering like what is really going on over in new york and why aren't we seeing that here and i guess that's what i figured out on the first day i <laughs> after the first shift i i went back to the hotel and I just didn't even know what to do. <laughs> I was just in awe at what the type of treatment that I was seeing happen there. So tell me about the treatment. You're, you're writing a book about your experience, am I correct? Yes. yes. And that will be out when? Um, it's on, out on August 18th. It's the Undercover Epicenter Nurse. And in it, you talk about, I, I imagine in detail, all the gross negligence and medical malpractice that you observe, but just give our listeners an idea of what, what, what would encompass gross negligence. Um, so on my first day, I already kind of, I did a, a whole lot of research before going over there. What's working? What's not working? What are the alternative treatments that are helping? What was helping in my hospital? And um, when I got there, I wasn't seeing any, any alternative type of therapies. The treatment was pretty much ventilators. And that should really be the last resort. Um, they were doing it as a first resort and kind of skipping over everything else. And um, no, just the whole, nobody cared. And that was really hard for me to comprehend being a nurse, we're supposed to care. And these patients were really just seen as disposable. Other multiple residents would say, well, they're going to die anyway, so who cares? And um, that, that was really hard for me to go home and like really <laughs> dig deep in my soul and be like, is this what I signed up for? You know, we're not helping anyone. So a couple of days later, I contacted an attorney that I knew in New York City, and I let him know just, you know, all this, all these things that were going on, just the, how patients were being ventilated unnecessarily, being sedated with so many different types of drugs, and just the lack of compassion and um, mixing COVID positive patients with COVID negative patients and calling COVID negative patients COVID positive patients, not coding patients that were full code, which means you want to be resuscitated, doctors telling us not to do it and charting otherwise. All of that was happening and I needed to figure out how I would be able to let the public know this and actually be believed because there were other nurses and doctors. Dr. Cameron Kyle came out real early, all the way back in March. Ventilators mm -hmm. were the wrong treatment. I paid attention to what he was saying, but people were calling him crazy and that he was a quack and like, you know, no one believed him. So without proof, how, how are you ever supposed to show the public what's going on? because it's so absolutely just devastating and unbelievable and just everything that the medical profession doesn't stand for happening. All this was happening. So I had to get 
um, video. And so that's what we decided that we were going to do. Um, and so that's, that's what I started doing. I started recording everything. And, so do you have video? Do you have transcripts? Did any of the other nurses come to your aid? So this is what's weird about the situation. Um, when we were there, all of the nurses were pretty much in unison in the fact that what was happening was really wrong. And people were upset about it. And we talked about it all the time. And I have all these re um, conversations recorded. <laughs> and I didn't do it to, to be rude or to you know degrade these other nurses, but nobody's coming forward or very few are coming forward right now because of the backlash and because essentially if you speak out about something like this you're pretty much signing you know up to be blacklisted from the nursing profession or any type of healthcare you know job um, for the rest of your life and and that's really sad because that's our job. We're supposed to be the, our patient advocates. We're supposed to, we're mandatory reporters in this profession. So I think our healthcare system is so far gone that people forgot the true values of why we do what we do. And that's one of the things that I want, I want to change. You know, I, I think we need that. We need a healthcare reform. We need to look at the big picture and we need to put the patient's before these profit. So I, I guess my question to you is, you, you came to a hospital. I mean, did you actually expect to see alternative treatments being used? Did they use any of the hydroxyquinoline for heaven's sakes, which was effective in so many people? That's what was so surprising to me because my hospital, we were treating our patients with the hydroxychloroquine and zinc protocol and with 100% survival rate. 100%. Say that again for my listeners. Yeah, 100% survival rate at my hospital. There was one patient after I left who was very, very, very old um, from assisted living who was already a DNR, you know, and so he passed. And DNR is do not resuscitate. Correct. Okay. So, I mean, he was, and he was at his end of life, but this was prior to, this was after I left. So before I left, yeah, zero, zero deaths um, with that protocol. So when I got to New York, I expected that we would be using that and I found out it's banned. So the governor banned a treatment that was 100% successful by the time I left my hospital in Florida and we couldn't even use it. It just, I could not believe it. I couldn't believe it. So basically, what, what did they do? Did they intubate all of these COVID positive and some of the COVID negative people? Is that what you saw? Yeah, I mean, the protocol is oxygen. You know, you put them on a nasal cannula. That's just a little tube. You know, you see people walking around with that in stores and stuff like that. And then you move up, maybe um, non-rebreather mask. Then you go up to you know a little a BiPAP. So things these are these are um, deliver oxygen delivery systems that are non-invasive, which meaning you're not sticking a tube down a person's throat and forcing air into their lungs. This is like on the outside. So they would really skip over those or quickly speed through it um, and get them on a ventilator. 
I, I, the, I mo just, the motivation for doing that was what? Weren't the hospitals, aren't the hospitals getting paid for each ventilated patient? Yeah. Um, I don't think that the motivation to ventilate these patients came from the doctors. The doctors took these orders from the administration and the administration took the orders from, you know, the higher up governmental officials all the way up to Cuomo. So yes, they received $39,000 per vent per patient. And then if they were admitted to the floor, either as a COVID positive or a COVID rule out patient, COVID rule out patients, meaning they've given them a test and they're waiting on the results. Which brings me to the fact that they didn't use the rapid test there. They used the long test that took five to 10 days. And in the meantime, they're sticking these patients awaiting the results on COVID positive floors. So what do you think is going to happen there? Mm. So yeah, financial incentive was very important. I'm sure to the hospital administration and you know, to, to get more money, this became, the doctors became essentially order followers. So they were just following the orders and they don't mm. question anything because if they do that, they're going to end up like me and getting kicked out. It sounds like Nazi Germany. It, it's exactly it. Um, but, but I guess my bigger question to you is, do you think that the experience of, of all this medical malpractice that you were able to witness firsthand, is that unique to New York to New York and the Elmhurst Hospital, or is this something that's more widespread? No, I see this going on all over the place. And ever since my video came out, I've had people, not even in the United States, but around the world contact me and saying they're doing this at my hospital too. So this isn't just Elmhurst, but if you look around, there's, there's hot spots. And as, as much as I don't want to say that it's political, it sure seems to be heading in that direction. And that's very sad because this is not a partisan issue. This is a humanitarian issue and people are dying because of it. I, I totally agree with you. So I've seen that you have some detractors. I, I want to talk about that a little bit and see what you have to say. There's a, there's a particular uh, YouTube doctor that has really taken you to task. What would be your response? Well, for one, he wasn't there, and I was. Um, he's not an expert, and I am. I experienced this. The only experts are the people that were actually there on the front lines and saw what was happening. Specifically... Um, ones that have video of it, of it occurring. Um, and you know, personal attacks are always going to come with, with something like this. And, um, my health choices, as far as, you know, my own personal beliefs and what I do with my own family is, should really have, it shouldn't be even discussed in a situation such as this, you know, to, to very true. It. Very true. I agree. Yeah. So then, what were yeah. the, what were the, what were the, what was the negativity particularly that you were making this up, that you were being unduly hard, that you were being cruel to the nurses and the doctors that were just doing their best for these sick people. What was the criticism? Um, uh, one of the criticisms I saw is that you wanted to, to get in there to do a book. 
and that you're doing this to make money doing a book. And I can just tell everybody out there, you don't necessarily make money doing a book. It's a real calling. You do it because you have a moral imperative to do the book. But that, but that's one of the things that I've that I've seen online. I mean, I mean, I mean, you expected this, didn't you? Oh yeah, I prepared for this, and the book was like a second thought because my my whole idea with the book is to be able to share things that weren't in that video, first of all, um, and more detailed accounts. And I don't, I'm so tired of being censored, and that is one way to, you know hopefully rewrite history and make sure that this never ever happens again and you're right i you don't you don't make money on on books and i'm really putting i, I pretty i pretty much tanked my career by doing what i'm doing so i mean if i can make it worthwhile then then so be it and i hope that it does inspire a lot of people um after reading it to you know be brave themselves and, and not be afraid to speak out, even if they're the only ones. So. so if you were in charge of the hospital or the administration or the hires up, what kind of alternative treatments would you have implemented? What would you have been looking for in this particular hospital setting? I brought this up to one of the doctors in the video and was pretty much laughed at, but I do a lot of research and here's one thing. Nobody can claim they're an expert. Nobody is. And nobody. Nobody knows what's going on. So anything should be worth a try, right? I mean... Oh, so definitely so. So the ventilators, per this doctor that I, that I well, I have, I recorded this conversation. He said that, and I, this was towards the end of April, I think this is around the time when I had been recording him, that every single patient at Elmhurst on a ventilator died and nobody was successfully extubated, which means taking the tube out. So mm -hmm. they have a hundred percent death rate on the ventilators. Mm. Horrific. So I asked him, and this is what I would have done. If I was in charge of the hospital, I would have been looking at absolutely everything like I did, you know, myself personally before you know, go heading over there. But if there's successful treatments that are working in other countries and other states, then why not give it a go? The high dose IV vitamin C, Dr. Chang, the, you know, um, ozone therapy, the, uh, the hydroxychloroquine zinc protocol, um, multiple different alternative treatments that were proven to be successful in, in helping these patients. So why not give it a go instead of putting these patients on a ventilator when they know it's pretty much a death wish? It makes no sense. But would you say that this whole COVID-19, there's some people that are purporting that it's a hoax. Would you just clarify that so that we get real clarity here? I mean, you've been on the front lines. It's not a hoax. Am I correct in assuming that? Yes, you're correct. This is there, COVID-19 is something. I mean, I've, I've seen the x-rays. I've seen what it does to patients. Um, what is, what is not being accurately reported are the way these people are dying. Um, it's from mismanagement and negligence and the wrong treatment protocol and a whole bunch of doctors that are roaming around under a liability-free environment 
and these residents that had just recently graduated you know, from medical school and now are working their clinical hours to get hands-on experience, essentially practicing the, their skills on intubated patients with absolutely no family in the rooms to advocate for them. Which is, a, which is a shame. So what can be done with those families that can't be there as an advocate? Isn't that where you come in, the nurses come in? Yeah, we're, that's, that's our entire job is to be there for the patients, be their eyes and their ears. And if there's something that shouldn't be done to that patient, we're there to speak up and, and make sure that they stay as safe as possible. And to, and to be honest and trustworthy and true, you know, be there for them. And that never, that just didn't happen the majority of the time there. So who is more, not more, maybe most susceptible to COVID? I mean, we're talking about people with comorbidities, the overweight, the elderly, those that have problems with high blood pressure, high blood sugar, maybe some sort of autoimmune issue. And we're also seeing an inordinate number of males versus females. What have been your observations? Yep, I've seen definitely more males affected by this, and a lot of them are... um, Older, obviously, um, not as healthy. But then again, there was other patients that I saw there. There was a lot of Hispanic males, mid-30s, 20s to 30s. um, Hispanic males were affected quite a bit there. So there was really no rhyme or reason um, for these age groups. And it really did vary. But definitely, I would definitely say a lot more men than women. Mm, it's so interesting to, to yeah. see. What about children? Do you think children are susceptible? They don't. No, see- I don't. I didn't see one child, and I really, ha- I still haven't seen any children affected um, here in Florida that you know maybe didn't have comorbidities or been you know immunocompromised um, and, and hospitalized for other things. But I didn't. I really haven't seen any any children really affected by this whatsoever. So I guess with all of your experience, you're writing a book, do you have any kind of advocacy organization that you have, that you've created in in reference to to what you're trying to do to get people much more conscious about what's going on in healthcare? In other words, how can we all support you? And then I'm gonna ask you a whole slew of of questions from my followers. Um, I am working on, an organization. Um, I'm not quite ready <laughs> to, um, to to go live with it yet, but it is in the hopes to um, bring kind of a new healthcare into the into the world, essentially um, one that's more focused on on the patients, as I said before, and being able to have alternative treatments available if you so choose to. Um, The government really should never get in the middle of a doctor-patient relationship, and that should always be something sacred that's that's protected, and and, and that's not really happening these days. So, um, yeah, I will I will um, maybe follow up with you <laughs> when that when that time comes. But we've got a we've got a group of people that are so interested in knowing this. And then the other thing is, from your experience, this just popped into my head. How do you think 
some of these government officials actually know there's going to be a second wave of COVID. How are they able to predict such a thing? I mean, I've been around for many years. I'm 70 years old. I never have remembered a second wave of any kind of viral issue or, or respiratory issue. So how can they know for certainty that there's something else that's coming this fall? Well, they can't. I mean, they claimed that we were going to have this huge wave in Florida and they were wrong. They've, they've been consistently wrong about pretty much everything. <laughs> They're not even getting the test right right now. Like they, they were saying that Florida had a 98% positive, you know, test rate. And then they, they were questioned and they're like, you know, had to pull back and it's actually 9.8%. So, I mean, a lot of these numbers are being deliberately <laughs> given to the public to, to terrify them and, and they're, and it's bad data. And so I, I don't understand how they would ever be able to protect or predict a second wave unless they're going to create it themselves. Well, that's, that's what some people online are suspecting. So do you think this COVID is going to be around for a long time or is it going to disappear during the election? <laughs> loaded, loaded question. Yeah, I mean, honestly, and with my God honest opinion, I think it's going to be over after the election. And I hate to say it because I don't want to make this political, but it just feels like that's where it's leaning. <laughs> and, and people, you know, look at what Cuomo did. You know, he banned the hydroxychloroquine in New York. Why? He ordered 30,000 vents, but failed to get 30,000 people to be able to run those vents. Mm. That takes real special training from my understanding. Yeah. So, I mean, how are these guys making these decisions? And my governor, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, you know, he didn't ban any of that. And, you know, he's getting a, a lot of uh, flack for that. But we're, we're doing really great here in Florida, and they're trying to make it seem that it's not that way. Despite the publicity, despite the propaganda. What about, but, what, and what's going on in Texas? Isn't that something similar? Yeah, very, it's the same thing. And you know what they're doing? They're still putting on all these patients on these ventilators knowing it's the wrong treatment, and they're failing to look at anything else, and it doesn't make sense to me. And, like, the hardest-hit city, and I'm only speaking on... Florida because I know it. Um, in Tampa, it's it's very, you know, it's very left. And they're the ones that were hardest hit. And the the mayor welcomed the the riots there, essentially. And um, and I think that if you look at the different cities, you gotta see who's running these cities and, and why their numbers are so high, you know. And it just kind of all connects, all these dots start connecting and oh, oh they 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 do. I don't dis I don't disagree yeah. one iota. So one of my one of my followers, I'm gonna to move to some of their questions because they're so anxious to yeah. communicate with you, Aaron Marie. So what do you think the truth is regarding oh, this is a loaded one, mask wearing and why the hospitals are accused of fudging the numbers, which we just covered, of real COVID deaths. So what about the masks? Yay, nay, which ones are safe? Is this something we should all be doing 24 hours a day? No, I mean, to, to wear a mask is, you have to be, you have to understand how to wear it and how to take it off. And if you're gonna actually protect yourself, you're gonna have to be fitted with an N95 mask professionally. And, you know, you're only supposed to be wearing these for an hour and then changing them, <laughs> you know? Nobody or, changes them. They wear them all day. 
Right. And, and even to take them off, there's a specific way to take them off. You can't wear them under your chin. And even in the hospital, if they catch you walking around with a mask underneath your chin, you're in trouble. And people don't mm -hmm. even understand it. It's, de it's, it's contaminating it. I watched a little girl drop her mask on the ground in an elevator and the mom had her pick it up and she put it on her face. Oh gosh. And, you know, it just, it doesn't make any sense. And we're, the, the death rate is literally 90. I mean, the, what is, what is the, what am I trying to say here? The survival rate is very survival high. Survival rate. Yeah. It's like 99%, 98.9%. So what are we doing? Well, that, that becomes a real political question, which we're going to just avoid for the time being. But my question is, the, the, do the masks on children, do you think they cause more harm than good? Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. You will not find my kids in a mask at all. I, I, I disagree with it a hundred percent. I think it's, it's unsafe. They are breathing in their own CO2. They don't know how to properly take it on and off. They're touching their faces. It's proven that when people have these masks on, they're consistently touching their face. <laughs> so so the, the question then remains, what, do you, what is your real opinion on the schools reopening? It, it's a very, that's a real political issue as I, as I see it, but is that a good thing or a bad thing? I want the schools to reopen and I want them to reopen without having to force these poor children to be wearing masks. Because my school district here, just uh, came out yesterday with that they're going to be mandating masks. So I am now a homeschooler. I think a lot of parents are thinking the same way. And it's hard because I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I definitely don't want my children to be being raised in an environment that they're terrified of other people. We're around billions of germs every single day. Correct. And, and then, Aaron, just think of what's going to happen with all the hand sanitizers and the disinfectants, all the toxicity that you're exposed to. That probably will be worse for your immune system, and nobody's talking about that. Well, you're exactly right. They're, they're, one of the protocols is they're going to be consistently sanitizing and cleaning. You know, these cleaning products are terrible for your respiratory system. Oh, they're, they're toxic, toxic overload. And they're going to just be spraying that, and then these kids are in these masks, essentially breathing that in all day long. I, I just can't, I cannot get on board with that. And there's no science to back it. Um, let me, I should grab something quick. Or zero five one six two. And they did a study on asymptomatic carriers and they had them around a population and they studied to see what the spread was and nobody got it. Zero, zero people got it. So how is this, how is COVID actually transferring from person to person? They still can't answer that question. Well, years ago, the only people that were really in quarantine or lockdown were those people that were infected. So now you want to quarantine a healthy population. That, that doesn't make much sense to me, especially in light of what you just said. Well, and that, and also, they're terrifying people to even go out in public. Oh, I know. They're terrifying these poor people who are already probably sick, and now these sick people are locking themselves in their homes. Getting they're sicker. Getting sicker. And you know so, that the suicide rate has increased 700%. Yeah. Think of the mental health. 
the, what are what are what is really going on? What is happening to our economy? What is happening to people's freedoms? Freedoms. People are l losing businesses that they've worked their entire lives for and having to just close it down because they, they can't pay their bills anymore. It is sad. It is really sad to look around. And it's even more sad to know that these politicians won't even listen to another side, yet they're gonna make these draconian you know, recommendations that are literally changing people's lives possibly forever. From your research and your knowledge here, and I can add a little bit to that because I've been in the field for 40 years, can you tell me what you would do to make the heart and the lungs stronger? In other words, to protect the immunity of those particularly vulnerable organs? Well, that's the whole germ theory versus terrain theory. And I'm sure you know about that, Anne-Louise. But we, the, the germ theory is the medical pharma model where here's all your pills to cover up all the symptoms you have here's the vaccine that you know instead of protecting you know getting your immune system strong just take this and forget it and you can continue eating your mcdonald's at home <laughs> you know or we can look at the terrain theory which is like healing your body is possible and within your immune system is possible you know you know, heal, heal the body and get the body healthy. And you're going to do that by, you know, it's body, mind, and soul. So eat the right foods, take the right supplements, you know, stop putting that mask on your face all day and breathing in the CO2. It's not good for you. <laughs> you know, you know what I suggest to my clients now and my followers that everybody should get their vitamin D tested. There are a number of vitamin D receptors in the lungs. So vitamin D is key. Vitamin A is key. Vitamin C is key. Vitamin or the mineral zinc is key. It's an antiviral mineral as well as more quercetin, a very potent antioxidant that can help with any kind of cytokine storm, any kind of inflammatory response. So there's lots that you should do and stop eating sugar. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is when you see all of these edicts that are coming from on high. Nobody talks about improving the immune system. I find that really very sad. You're, yeah, I, that I do too. I'm like, you know, they're talking about everything else but that. So do they want people to be sick? That's sad. I think they do. They really do. So, so one of my followers made mention of something that I think is interesting. And he, and he talked about the importance of eye coverings because the virus can actually enter the eyes. Do you think it's important for people in high risk environments? And I'm talking about those that are more susceptible or those that are working with COVID active patients. Should they have some sort of eye protection, do you think? We, we did use it. Um, that is protocol when working with COVID patients is to wear you know, eyeglasses or a face shield. Um, out in public, I guess if you want to, <laughs> you know, but I don't think, I, I don't believe anything should be mandatory like that. But yeah, if you're a high-risk population, you know you're going to be around a COVID patient. I, I don't know when that type of scenario would come up, but I, I mean, it can't hurt you. You think from some of the from some of the research that I've read that there's a connection between blood types and COVID. Have you seen anything in terms of your on on the how should we say it on the front lines experience? For example, those that have an O blood type are more are resistant. Those that have an A are more sensitive. Do you put any strength any any power into that? 
I, I did pay attention to that because that was one of the focuses that Dr. Cameron Kyle Sadell had was that, you know, this isn't a breathing issue. This is a blood, a blood issue. And I agree with him 100%. So I did pay attention to people's blood types and there really wasn't any consistency. People were kind of all over the place. So I don't know. I think that it is definitely something to, to look into. And um, I think it would be, you know, something worth worthwhile to, to study. So the people that you have seen, do any of them actually ask for alternative treatments when they've come into the hospital? Are you still working in Florida, for example? I know you were in a kind of low-income uh, mm -hmm. hospital in Elmhurst, but it, are people asking for vitamin C? Are they asking for ozone, asking for vitamin D? Are they knowledgeable, any of these people that are coming into these uh, major hospitals? In Elmhurst, um, they weren't very knowledgeable about the alternative treatments and this is and this is even before you know this pandemic and that when people walk into a doctor's office it's already kind of frightening you know a lot of people don't like going to the doctor but then you're in front of that white coat and you're not a medical professional so everything that they tell you is solid gold and you just go ahead and believe it and you don't question it and that's it that's what it must be and that that's a very big problem um, and that was a very big problem in Elmhurst because they, a lot of these patients were told either you're going to die with COVID or you're going to have to get it put on a ventilator in order to help you breathe for a while while we can treat you. So they get, they get very frightened. Do you think most of these people were suffering from panic attacks? Yes, 100%. Yes. I've seen it in Florida. I actually had a friend call me today in tears hyperventilating. I needed to talk her down because she just is like, I just can't take this anymore. And this is happening all over. And I guarantee there's a lot of listeners probably out there that feel the same way. And all I can say is that what the media is telling you is, is not the whole truth. And so the media is perpetuating. Yeah. I think they're they perpetuating are. the severity of the, of the problem. Absolutely. 100%. And yeah. they're are they inflating the numbers? I mean, how do we know what the true numbers are? We don't. And, and that's, thank goodness for, it was Fox 35 out of Orlando that started investigating. Um, this is in Florida, and I know this has been all over, about the high numbers that they're, they're putting out for these tests. And they found that that was, a, that, was, that was bad data. So how do you get that wrong, put it all over the news, and, and create this panic frenzy of, of people running all over thinking that this is, you know, we're getting hit and everybody's going to die. That is, that's wrong. That is ethically and morally wrong to do to people. It's happening all over. You know, I just read something from my good friends at Green Health Green Health Info, Green, actually they're called greenmedinfo.com. And I just read an article that says that even though the curve has been flattened, that the mainstream media outlets continue to push doomsday predictions of an impending explosion of deaths. How true is that? That's 100% accurate. That's exactly what they're doing. And the sad part is when you call them on it, because a lot of people have asked, they had a school board meeting here and I was, I was listening in on it. Um, you know, that question was asked, what about the numbers? And they're like, you know, oh, we're going to have to look into it. Like, I don't know how much more clear it can get, <laughs> you know, and they don't want to admit it. And then they move on and they keep on keeping on. And it's just 
really, really. Well, you know, you know what I see, Aaron, I see that people suspend their common sense reasoning when they're in great fear. Yes. There's a suspension of thought, of belief. And it really is interesting to me because they're so afraid of this sharp increase in cases, but that's not a showing of the proof of the disease spread. It's the spread of testing that's so prevalent. And what about the testing? How accurate is the testing? I know they may be inflating the numbers. I had um, a client that called me in tears the other day because her son had died of a automobile accident. And then she said that the cause of death on the death certificate was COVID-19. And I'm sure that's going on all over the country. Well, sure. Look at the senator over in Minnesota. Um, Senator is a doctor, uh, Scott Jensen. Um, you know, he's a, he's an MD, uh, essentially he's a whistleblower too. And now his, his license is being threatened because he, he called it out that it's ethically wrong to be putting COVID on people's death certificates when they didn't die of COVID. It, it, it's, it's, it's just completely blows my mind that people are defending this. Like, that, that it's okay. There's nothing okay about it. <laughs> you know, no, like, where, where did the morals go in, in our healthcare system? So you, so you believe the way I do that it's probably not as widespread as they say it is. Do you think people are being specifically lied to? That's a question from one of my, one of my followers. I think that people are being purposely confused to induce fear. So in short, yes, I think that people are absolutely being lied to. And that's why I had to get video because I want the people to know the truth so they can just relax and just be able to live their life and, and not live following this fear that they want to create and, you know, be able to stand up and say no if they know something's wrong. Were you tested for COVID? No, no. Did you allow yourself to be tested? And if, no. if not, why not? Um, for what reason? <laughs> you know, like, I, 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 I don't know why I would want to get tested. And they're not going to put me on a ventilator, that's for sure. And uh, I trust my immune system because I take care of my body. And I mean, I was at the epicenter of the epicenter. Half the time my N95 wasn't even the right size. So I'm sure that was just useless. And, and I did not get sick. And, and I, you know, and I, I was literally probably the healthiest person there. You know? So what do you do for yourself, my dear? I'm curious. Um, consistently when I was in... New York, I was taking anywhere from five to 8,000 um, milligrams of liposomal vitamin C. Uh, that's a pretty high dose, but I was, you know, around these patients. So I wanted to make sure it's a really powerful antioxidant and it's proven to, to be very um, helpful in the treatment. Um, I exercise, I stay away from, I, I, I keep a whole food diet. I, I eat very, very little sugar. Um, I think that's huge that um, sugar should be kicked out of everybody's diet if you really want to boost your, you know, keep your immune system on point. Um, I take zinc, I take vitamin D, vitamin A and C, a good probiotic, I drink a lot of water. 
I am active and um, my kids, my kids and my entire family, we all did the same thing. God bless you. Well, is there anything else you'd like to say to my listening audience? I know that they're listening to every single jot and tittle of this conversation. Yeah. Any other words of wisdom and uh, inspiration, motivation, and moral courage you can impart? Ooh, I could go on forever about that. But honestly, I just hope that for anyone that's listening to just feel, feel good that the media is really creating this and it's not as it seems. Um, you know, patients are not dropping like flies from COVID itself. They're, they were dying um, because of the, the, the treatment and um, the, lack of, the lack of compassion and care that was given. And to just keep on working on, on themselves, you know, um, you can't have, you know, body, mind, and soul um, all healthy. Every, every single one of those aspects needs to be worked on. So the, the mind in itself, you know, just worrying so much, that's going to, you know, hurt your immune system too. So hopefully... Um, you know, this helped with that area, you know, just to be able to sleep at night and relax and know that, you know, the truth and to just keep, um, keep, keep digging for more. And, and if there's any other questions, you know, I, I would always be happy to, to answer them. Well, I may, I may have you come back, Erin Marie, because this has yes. been very informative and I'm so grateful for your your fight for a return to ethics, to transparency, and your ultimate respect for the truth. Yeah, I, I'm so thankful that you had me on, and Louise, and I respect you so much and all that you do, too. So you, you promised to come back and, be, and keep in touch, and I want to thank all of you for listening to this episode of the First Lady of Nutrition podcast. Keep well, keep healthy, take your vitamin C, your zinc, vitamin A, and a little quercetin as well. Lots of love to all of you. Thank you again, Erin Marie. Thank you so much, Anne Louise, and thank you everyone for listening. Bye-bye.